we are indeed in Lent. My little reminder that I think I've shared in a few different places so far that Lent was not designed, actually, to begin with, as a penitential season. It was designed to be a season of preparation, a season through which new members of the church would prepare themselves for the commitments and celebrations of baptism, and rising in new life, literally coming out of the waters of baptism around midnight on Easter Sunday. So Lent isn't a party by any stretch, but maybe we can say that it's party planning. And, you know, as anybody who knows anything about these sorts of things, sometimes party planning involves cleaning out the grease trap on the stove and, you know, sorting out that pile of things that you meant to give away that's just been kind of piling up in the corner for a little while. It's okay for us to recognize that there can be messy and frightening things on the way to the party. I would say that for many of us, on our way to the celebration of deeper life and meaning in God and Christ, one of the things that needs scraping out and maybe some good old sorting out of what is treasure and what is trash is sin. What it means for you, what it means to God, what God expects us to do about it, and what God's plan for it might be when we let it sit in the corner and ignore it for a few years. Today we'll hear from Paul's letter to the Romans in a section that I'm not sure he intended to create church doctrine out of, but that's what happened. He mainly wanted to talk about what God has accomplished through Jesus, but Paul took a detour through Genesis chapter 3, and well, now we've got all this original sin in the laundry hamper to deal with. So listen. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the, and the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Where did things go wrong, we might ask, and Paul starts off on his lecture. Of course, for many of us in our faith lives, what went wrong, where things went wrong, is somewhere along this passage. For from this passage, the church would come to create a doctrine of original sin, an explanation for our humanness that somehow through the years has made us less human. 
Maybe you grew up with this, the idea that sin was some sort of hereditary disease that we picked up from Adam, and now all of us are born with it. I hear it in painful places. I hear it in the worries of families who are anxious to baptize their fragile and wondrous babies, lest they be stuck in sin. I hear it in the pain of families who could not baptize their babies before they died. I hear it in the estrangement from ourselves that many feel. That we are, at the core, somehow permanently wrong. Cast out of the garden, as the story goes, and must anxiously work to earn God's willingness to let us return. If we are going to journey to a deeper sense of God's love, I guess we have to start here, on the other side of the garden gate. I've always understood this a little differently. Many who have been in classes with me know of my favorite Catholic theologian, Karl Rahner, who, you know, uh, invited us to wake up each morning and have a banana. Okay, did anybody do that this morning? Okay, excellent, good. Five servings of fruit and vegetables, something like that. Doctors, help me out. You wake up and you have a banana. That was easy. It was on the counter. All you did was wake up and eat it. What could have been wrong? Did you know that the wages at the grocery store are not necessarily just? Did you know that the shipping that brought that banana to you, because you know, like, we don't grow them here in Maine, just letting you know? poured carbon dioxide into the air. Do you want me to talk about the politics of the nations in which those bananas were grown and the workers' conditions there? You just had a banana. What happened? That's another way to think about this kind of sin in the world. Sin is real, and it is in the world, but it is not hereditary It's systemic. It's the complex web of what happens when we live at just a good enough remove that we fail to recognize our connection to each other. The consequences of each strand of action and reaction. This is that difference that we need to always remind ourselves. For so long, I think we talked about sin as we are a bad thing. but to recognize that we do bad things, often without thinking or intending to. It's all of us rather than each of us. I think that this is actually really core to this. We're going to get to this. It's a terrible thing that happened that we became disconnected from each other and that our notion of sin kind of became as like an individual holiness score that each of us is working on, just us apart from anybody else. Of course, I want to say that for Paul today, in the little piece that we heard, thank you, Sally, it does kind of wind around itself, and we're going to talk about one thing about that. Of the two words that we hear over and over again today, the most important word for Paul is not actually sin. It's death. For Paul, these are two powers in the world to, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, 
Towers. J.R.R. Tolkien was a good writer, as it turns out. How these two are related to each other and what they do to our experience of being human is a big deal. I read a new translation of this passage this week that intrigued me. So David Bentley Hart, who is an Eastern Orthodox scholar, would render what we just heard as, as sin came into the world through one man, and death came in through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. So that's the way we've traditionally heard this this phrase. We've all sinned, therefore we all die. Hart renders it as this. As sin entered into the cosmos through one man and death through sin, so also death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. There's something about death that leads us to sin. The communicable disease then wasn't in humanity, wasn't sin all along, it was death. It's what we do with death through which we get kind of tangled up. Other traditions have shared wisdom with us in this way. You know, Buddhism has been saying for centuries before that we struggle with our own impermanence, right? We are all here for just a spell. It's our attachment, our desire to cling, to, to solve that problem that is the source of suffering for us and for others, Buddhism would say. We don't need to look far for this, right? We see the ways in which we are tempted, and they are not far from the way that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of today's service. We're tempted to hoard resources so that we'll have enough at the expense of others. We're tempted to take comfort in our own security when others have none. We're tempted to take power over rather than with, all in a failed effort to somehow cheat death, right? I would argue with Buddha, and I think Jesus does too, that the move then isn't to total detachment. It's to the permanence and connection of loving and reconciling relationship with God and with each other and with ourselves. That will right our ship enough that we recognize we can't hoard up resources for ourselves. We can't secure ourselves against others. We do need that reconciliation with God, with each other, with ourselves that I think we have led ourselves through all of our conversations of sin through the centuries. Reconciling with ourselves led me to a funny place this week. I just finished reading a sort of sci-fi thriller novel called The Echo Wife. If that is your sort of thing, then you could check it out. In it, brilliant geneticist Dr. Evelyn Caldwell finds that her scientist husband, this is kind of, you know, your normal kind of psychological thriller at home, her scientist husband Nathan is having an affair and leaving her, but worse, he has also absconded with her research. So the first twist is, of course, Nathan is leaving Evelyn for a clone of herself. The second twist, I don't want to give too much away, is that the most meaningful relationship in the book is formed between Evelyn and her clone, Martine, who end up working and talking together quite a lot. That's the fun part. 
Martine is Evelyn in some way, just without the backstory. Vast oceans of Evelyn's life that, of course, her husband never thought about or knew about. Her relationship with her mother and father, past traumas, sources of challenge, and then the confidence that comes from having survived those. All those things make her unique, and you can't just replicate, right? All sorts of knowledge of good and evil, as we might say. So talking and working together, Evelyn and Martine have this amazing form of therapy and experimentation. They can unlock some of the mysteries of how Martine became Evelyn, how any of us have come to be, who have seen pain and trauma, sin and regret. Can we make friends with ourselves again? Is the question I found myself wondering. Imagine if you could talk with a version of yourself that never knew some hardship and could kind of reverse engineer insights of how you change. Not erase them. I would recommend highly not erasing all of the things that have been hard for you in your life. But how could you see how you have been wounded, yes, but also how strengthened? Imagine discovering more clearly what was nature and what was nurture or the lack of nurture. Imagine that consciousness of how you came to be could free you. That's a long walk to say. I think that's kind of what Paul is doing here by bringing in these archetypes of Adam and Jesus, asking us to talk with ourselves, these archetypes of human beings. Adam is kind of us before we became us. Christ is who we will be. Can we make them all be friends? Can we learn from our failings and learn even more from our ability to not let them remove our humanity? Because I think that's the real thing of sin that we need to engage with more. Lest we all be confused with what we in the modern day are all fighting about regarding sin... These days, it feels like most churches just want to scream about you know, personal sexual morality as the conversation about sin. Just a reminder here that Adam and Eve, hey, remember her? She got both blamed and then erased from this conversation, but that's for another day. Their sin is not in some arbitrary rule about personal behavior, but it's in fearing that God is somehow foreign to them, that they need to go it alone, that they are alone, and that they should reach for what ultimately hurts them to secure their future without God. It's disconnection, actually, that's at the core of that story. Death wants to tell us things fall apart, that relationships end, that our time is finite. Sin, I think, wants to tell us that we don't, and can live like we don't, care about that. Any of you who might have been teachers might have recognized me when I was a high school student. I loved other things. Sorry, I wasn't really going to do the math thing, but I was going to do the music thing, and that was what I cared about. As it turned out, it meant that oftentimes I was doing music things when I should have been doing math things. Have you ever had that student who just, you know, they get behind on the homework, and then before the next thing you know, they just keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper. They can't recover because the message becomes, well, I'm a bad student, so I just must be bad at school, and so I'm just going to stop. 
That's the relationship, I think, between death and sin. There's that disconnection there. And so we just go on thinking like, well, there's no way to repair this. So I give up with the caring. And that's the healing part is to remind us the reconciliation piece, that we can stay connected. In our world, we feel the powers of death and detachment. We see, indeed, this Black History Month that we are still reliving the lasting pain of slavery and racism in our nation. That sense of separation. Do we care enough to reach for reconnection and reconciliation? We see wars raging. Is that just the way it is, or shall we reach for peace? We see our own friendships and communities splintering across various lines and differences. And we see more and more of our neighbors isolated and living with an epidemic of loneliness. I just want to say this. The last three years have not been without consequences. People are feeling more alone, more separate. Are we just going to say that's how it is? Or are we going to reach... The cure to all this, Paul tells us, is life and connection. And so by coming to share life with us, Christ reconnects us to God and to each other. Yes, we are mortal. Ash Wednesday did happen. But it's in the connection with each other, with the divine, that we find that our life does go on. All of us us who love and grieve, know that, right? We both grieve and we feel the connection of those we love. Christ has come to live and to remind us to live is to stay connected to each other, to God, to remind us that when there is pain and rupture, we can always return, that God is, in fact, never done with us. Bible loves a circle. The story starts in a garden. Come back Easter Sunday. Can I get you to commit to do that? Will you come back on Easter Sunday? The story ends, friends, in a garden. There is always more life, more chances to reconnect to right ourselves with each other and with God's love. Amen.